0: America is terribly divided. The president is considered by many to be a racist, and he is ignoring Congress. He demonstrates a gross incompetence and an overconfidence in the public support of him. The year is 1865. The president is Andrew Johnson. He once said, if I'm shot at, I want no man to be in the way of the bullet. Unlike his predecessor, instead of a bullet, his enemies would fire impeachment votes. His life wasn't at risk, but his presidency was heading to the grave. I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to the podcast, The Story Is. The podcast where we talk about the past, the present, and the political This is episode one of my Profiles in Impeachment, entitled Andrew Johnson, Destined to Conflict. In Lincoln's 1864 re-election bid, he dumped his first term vice president, Hannibal Hamlin. To appear to appeal to non-Republicans, he showed that he wasn't just a northerner leader. The president instead ran on a new National Union ticket. And the person he picked was Andrew Johnson. Why did he pick him, this lifelong Democrat from Tennessee? Out of all the eleven southern states, Andrew Johnson was the only senator who didn't secede. As a southerner, proudly in favor of preserving the nation, Johnson seemed to be the right person for the job. The selection of Johnson appeared to be uh, another one of Lincoln's politically smart moves. That was until Johnson was inaugurated as vice president. The problem is, Andrew Johnson arrived in Washington with typhoid fever. His solution to that problem? drinking whiskey. It is here that I have to tell you that Andrew Johnson was not a doctor. He is a tailor. He even made his own suit. His wife taught him how to read, and he prescribed himself a lot of whiskey to fight this typhoid fever. Michigan Senator Zachariah Chandler later wrote about this incident. The inauguration went off very well Except the vice president-elect was too drunk to perform his duties. Highlights of his address include a moment when he called out all the cabinet members name by name and demanded they never forget that power came from the people. Johnson worked his way through the list of members of the cabinet. And as he was going through the names, he forgot one. David O. Stewart wrote in his book Impeached that this led to Johnson to call out in a stage whisper loud enough to be heard by others in in attendance. What's the name of the Secretary of Navy? Eventually, Johnson completed his remarks and was successfully sworn in. But Johnson's duties did not end yet. Johnson attempted to perform what he was supposed to do by swearing in the new senators, but was so disoriented that he had to be relieved of his task. Just a month later, after this embarrassment, President Lincoln was assassinated and typhoid Andrew Johnson became president. The new president of the United States, Andrew Johnson, was both considered by many to be a racist and a very difficult man to get along with. He routinely called blacks inferior. He bluntly stated that no matter how much progress they made, they must remain so. He openly called critics disloyal, even treasonous. He threw insults like candy during public speeches. He ignored answers he didn't like, and he put other people into positions he didn't want them to be in, and then blamed them when things went poorly. His own bodyguard later called him destined to conflict. A man who found it impossible to conciliate or temporize. Elizabeth Van Ron, a history professor at the University of Virginia, wrote of Andrew Johnson He utterly failed to make a satisfying and just peace because of his racist views, his gross incompetence in federal office, and his incredible miscalculation of public support for his policies. He tried to preempt them and then undermine Congressional Reconstruction by deeming the Republican experiment in black citizenship a failure and by portraying former Confederates as victims of Republican misrule. President Johnson disagreed with Congress on many core reconstruction issues, such as allowing black people to vote and how they would go about doing it. Johnson said, if you could extend the elective franchise, meaning the ability to vote, to all persons of color who can read the Constitution of the United States in English and write their names, and to all persons of color who own real estate valued at no less than $250 and pay taxes thereon and would comple- and would completely disarm the adversary. This you can do with perfect safety, and as a consequence... The radicals who are wild upon Negro franchise will be completely foiled in their attempts to keep the southern states from renewing their relations to the Union. Now the plan was, before Lincoln was assassinated, he had formulated a plan of reconstruction that would be lenient toward the defeated South as it re-entered the Union. Lincoln's plan granted a general amnesty to those who pledged a loyalty oath to the United States and agreed to obey all federal laws pertaining to slavery. Lincoln's plan also stated that when a tenth of the voters who had taken part in the 1860 election had agreed to the oath within a particular state, then that state could formulate a new government and start sending representatives to Congress. Johnson was intent on carrying out this plan when he assumed the presidency. This policy, however, did not sit so well with the radical Republicans in Congress, radical Republicans so-called, who wanted to set up military governments and implement more stringent terms of readmission to the Confederate States. As neither side was willing to compromise, a clash of wills ensued. Johnson failed to see any way to compromise or value in the legislation brought to him by Congress. Johnson would veto bill after bill after bill. Johnson vetoed both a civil rights bill designed to fight back the dreaded black codes, another measure to expand the function of the Freedmen's Bureau, Johnson's message to Congress about the la- latter veto included co- condescending language, like urging legislators to make more mature considerations. These vetoes enraged Congress, especially the, those who wrote the bills, and to whom Johnson had raised no objections when he, he'd sought the president's opinions during the, drafting the process. So he blindsides them with his opposition to the bill's. The legislative branch, as a consequence, did something that was then unprecedented in American history on a major piece of legislation. The Congress overturned a presidential veto. This veto override would happen again and again. It would happen so often that Johnson still has the record for most veto overrides at 15. Most ever. Now, this tendency of Johnson's to veto legislation for reconstruction from the Congress and being unwilling to compromise in order to make any progress caused Congress to be so fed up with him that they were probably leaning towards looking to see if they can get rid of this guy. He wasn't supposed to be there anyways. So after vetoing, vetoing, vetoing things, what lights the match is the Tenure of Office Act. Now, the Tenure of Office Act was passed over by Johnson's veto in 1867, so he'd be familiar with it. Now, this act stated that a president could not dismiss appointed officials without the consent of Congress. Impeachment proceedings against Johnson came when Johnson violated the Tenure of Office Act by removing Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, from the Cabinet. You're probably wondering, why did he fire Stanton in the first place? Well, first, both Lincoln and Johnson had experienced problems with Stanton, who was an ally of the Radicals in Congress. Stanton's removal, therefore, was not only a political decision made to relieve the discord between the President and his Cabinet, but a test of the Tenure of Office Act as well. So Stanton was a problem. But firing Stanton was not the only goal. Johnson was well aware of the Tenure of Office Act, and he believed by firing Stanton he would cause this issue to be brought before the Supreme Court, and that it could be ruled unconstitutional. That was his other goal. Instead, it was the President himself who was brought to trial. Representative William D. Kelly calling for the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Sir, the bloody and untilled fields of the ten unreconstructed states The unsheated ghosts of the 2,000 murdered Negroes in Texas cry for the punishment of Andrew Johnson. President Johnson was impeached by the House of Representatives on February 24, 1868. The Senate tried the case in a trial that lasted from March to May of 1868. Johnson was a Democrat running the country when most of the Democrats had been kicked out of Washington altogether. His party held a minority in both chambers of Congress, and the odds were against him. There was 47 Democrats in the House, compared to 173 Republicans. Impeaching him on 11 articles was easy. Nine of the articles cited his violations of the Tenure of Office Act. One cited his opposition to the Army Appropriations Act in 1867. This was designed to deprive the president of his constitutional position as, a, as commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army. And one accused Johnson of bringing into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States through certain contra- controversial speeches. Since impeachment requires such a simple majority in the House and the, and the vote against him came along party lines, It was easy. He was easily impeached. In the Senate, the odds were even worse. There were 57 Republicans compared to just nine Democrats. The Attorney General at the time, Henry Stanberry, quit his day job to represent the President full time. Guess William Barr didn't do that. He just decided to represent the President and held on to his job, anyways. Stanberry helped lead a defense that centered on raising questions about Johnson's intent on violating the Tenure of Office Act, and whether the offenses were actually criminal. Impeaching Johnson was easy, and it seemed quite certain that he would also be removed. Yet a trial was had. And the account of this trial I gathered from the University of Kansas-Missouri Law, and it gives us an account of, the, of part of the trial to remove Andrew Johnson as president. On March 30th, 1860, Benjamin Butler rose before Chief Justice Salmon Chase and 54 senators to deliver the opening argument for the House managers in the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson. Historians such as David DeWitt had been struck by the improbability of the scene. The ponderous two-handed engine of impeachment, designed to be kept in cryptic darkness until some crisis of the nation's life cried out for interposition, was being dragged into day to crush a formidable political antagonist a few months before the appointed time when the people might get rid of him altogether. Butler's three-hour opening argument was a lawyer's plea with a dash of the demagogue. He contemptuously dismissed arguments that the Tenure of Office Act didn't cover Stanton, read parts of Johnson's 1866 speeches that were the basis of the 10th Article of Impeachment, and referred to the president as accidental chief and the elect of an assassin. House managers proceeded to introduce documentary evidence and witness testimony, supporting the 11 various articles of impeachment. Two witnesses described the confrontation between Edwin Stanton, the gentleman who was fired, violating the Tenure of Office Act, and Lorenzen Thomas in the War Office on the day of Stanton's firing on February the 22nd. One witness brought on torrents of laughter by his description of his meeting with Thomas in the East Room of the White House when he told when he told Thomas that the eyes of Delaware were upon him. Several witnesses testified as to details concerning speeches by the president delivered in Cleveland and St. Louis in September of 1866. On Thursday, April 9th, the managers closed their case. Many observers concluded that the testimony added little to the manager's case, and many have actually, have actually hurt their case by emphasizing the president's isolation and powerlessness in the face of a hostile Congress. The opening argument for the President was delivered by Benjamin Curtis, a former Justice of the Supreme Court best known for his dissent in the famous Dred Scott case. Curtis argued that Stanton was not covered by the Tenure of Office Act because the term of Lincoln ended with his death, and that the President did not in fact violate the act because he did not succeed in removing Stanton from office and that the act itself unconstitutionally infringed upon the powers of the president. As for the articles based on Johnson's 1866 speeches, Curtis said, The House of Representatives has erected itself into a school of manners, and they desire the judgment of this body whether the president has not been guilty of indecorum. Curtis argued that conviction based on the 10th article of impeachment would violate the free speech clause of the First Amendment. We jump to the final arguments, which stretched from April the 22nd to May the 6th. That's a long final argument. With the manager speaking for six days and counsel for the president speaking for five days. Arguments ranged from the technical to the hyperbolic. Manager Thaddeus Stevens railed against the wretched man standing at bay, surrounded by a caudron ...of living men, each with the axe of an executioner uplifted for his just punishment. Manager John Bingham brought the crowded galleries to its feet with his thunderous closing. He said, May God forbid the future historian shall record of this day's proceedings... ...that by reason of the failure of the legislative power of the people... ...to triumph over the usurpations of an apostate president the fabric of American empire fell and perished from the earth. I ask you to consider that we stand this day pleading for the violated majesty of the law by the graves of half a million martyred hero patriots who made death beautiful by the sacrifice of themselves for their country, the Constitution, and the laws, and who, by their sublime example, have taught us to obey the law, that none are above the law, and that position, however high, patronage, however powerful, cannot be permitted to shelter crime to the peril of the Republic. In the end, the Senate voted to acquit President Andrew Johnson by a margin of 35 guilty to 19 not guilty, one vote short of the two-thirds needed to convict. How did this happen? How did Johnson beat the odds? The seemingly miraculous victory of Andrew Johnson came down to individuals. Which is really what history many times comes down to, comes down to a few people. Senator Edmund Ross of Kansas is generally considered to have cast the deciding vote to acquit Johnson. There are some allegations that Ross may have essentially been bribed or he didn't want to elevate Benjamin Wade, the ranking senator at the time, to the presidency because Johnson had no vice president of his own and had he been removed, Wade would have become president. Ross got the hero treatment from John F. Kennedy in his book Profiles in Courage. His vote helped preserve the modern, powerful presidency. A total of seven senators abandoned their party and voted for his narrow acquittal to let Johnson finish out his term. They might have saved the powerful executive system, but they lost their jobs. None of those seven senators were reelected to the Senate, and they faced personal consequences as well. According to Senate history, Ross was ostracized and his family fell into poverty when they returned to Kansas. Johnson anticipated the Democratic Party would show some appreciation for the pain he had, he had been caused by the Republicans by g- giving him the presidential spot on the Democratic ticket for the coming election against Grant. The Democratic Party instead chose Horatio Seymour, a man who didn't even want the nomination in the first place. My motivation for these episodes on impeachment are not only to tell you maybe something you haven't heard or haven't heard in a long time, but also because this gives us an opportunity to compare and contrast today and what we're going through and what has happened in the past because so frequently I think um, whenever anyone is going through something we assume this is the only time this has ever happened to someone or to this extent it has never been this bad it has never been this awful it has never been this divided but I think you'll I think you've already seen and we, we will see some parallels between 1865 and today Stubbornness, racist statements, (laughs) if Andrew Johnson had a smartphone, you bet he would have wrote some troubling tweets. He was never supposed to be president. Events no one could see coming caused a belligerent, reckless, stubborn man to become the leader of the free world. The conflict between President Trump and Speaker Pelosi is just as contentious as the conflict between Johnson and the radical Republicans. Unlike Johnson, President Trump has been embraced by his own party in his bid for re-election. The GOP organizers have made what was a very difficult task, running against a sitting president in his own party, a virtual impossibility by practically eliminating primaries in certain states. Much like Johnson, the Trump impeachment cards appear to be stacked. There was very little doubt that he would be impeached. Not out of historical concern for Ukraine, Not out of the rule of law, but simply because the Democrats had the majority. So we knew it was going to happen. It wasn't necessarily because of the strength of the case. The Trump impeachment has only been about one thing. Removing a president who, similar to Andrew Johnson, has been at times embarrassing, racially insensitive, to say the least, and unable to compromise with Congress. Now, as we've seen Speaker Pelosi deliver the Articles of Impeachment to the Senate and they've voted to approve them, unless we see the Republicans vote against their wishes of their party, like Andrew Johnson's case, the Trump impeachment would be, won't be a time of change, but of conflict that seemed destined from day one of his presidency. Andrew Johnson, upon returning to Tennessee after his presidency, sought political vindication and gained it in his own eyes when he was elected to the Senate again in 1875, making Johnson the only former president to serve in the Senate. However, he died five months into his term. His strong opposition to federally guaranteed rights for African Americans is rightfully widely criticized. He is regarded by many as by historians as one of the worst Presidents in American history. On a survey uh, of 91 historians and professional observers, scored each President in 10 categories of Presidential leadership, including administrative skills, economic management, and international relations. Out of 44 Presidents, they excluded the current one. Andrew Johnson was ranked Forty-three. only James Buchanan is considered a worse president the president before Abraham Lincoln considered to be one of our worst the worst president of all time doing nothing to avoid civil war now my thoughts on this and you might be surprised by this is that Lincoln I believe should have saw this coming In Andrew Johnson's defining moment that set him apart from the rest of those southern senators when he stayed with the Union while the rest of them seceded he said damn the Negroes I'm fighting those traitorous aristocrats their masters in this moment though loyal to the federal government his horrible attitude toward black people should not have been glossed over It should have been seen as a key element to his character, an element that should be too dangerous for the White House. Andrew Johnson's only real vindication came in 1926. The Supreme Court declared that the Tenure of Office Act, the act that sparked his impeachment, had been ruled unconstitutional. As we come to the end of this episode, I can't help but make comparisons and contrasts with the impeachment of Andrew Johnson and the impeachment of Donald Trump. Not just the proceedings themselves, but the atmosphere of the country at the time of the impeachment. In both cases, we see a country divided. We see political polarization and the ineptitude of political parties to work together in order to accomplish the common good, to move forward, to build the country and push it towards a better direction. we find ourselves once again in the year 2020 divided thankfully not as divided as in 1860s but you do hear people talking about that actual civil war I can't help but wonder in this American experiment Is impeachment the best way to go? Is it the only way to go as political parties continue to be more of a hindrance than a unifying force in a certain direction? As both political parties appear to be moving further and further to the extreme, and our political conversations become further and further polarized, I wonder do these impeachments, both past and present, impede our government, or is it the only way to make progress in addressing the critical issues of our time? Is this step, impeachment, a step back, but also the only way forward? Or must our representatives find a way to work and compromise within our government so that we may find a way to work with people we find revolting, despite our political polarization, to achieve a more immediate and positive result? I guess we'll see. And maybe by the end of this series, we may have an answer. Until next episode, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. My sources for this episode. InsideHook.com's article, Lincoln's VP, Andrew Johnson, and his drunk, belligerent inauguration speech. CNN.com's article, Why Was Andrew Johnson Impeached? And Politico's, How a Difficult, Racist, Stubborn President Was Removed from Power, If Not From Office. Next time, we'll be looking at the presidency of Richard Nixon and how close he came to impeachment. That's next time.